0: You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham. Enlightening conversations for maximum market returns.
1: Okay, so your field is investment management, um, or is there something more
0: specific? Okay, so Phoenix Capital Group, that's a great question. What we specialize in is what... Uh, Buckminster Fuller would refer to as a phenomenon in life, which is to try to be anti-entropic, which means to try to put order into chaos. And what I mean by that is basically one of our core strengths is analytics and a quantitative approach to various different facets and industries. So we have a a finance team, we do equity research, and we also do marketing, and we also do business intelligence. And the the one single thread that holds everything together is the understanding of how to build models in overall chaotic systems. So if you're investing in the stock market, what model and approach can you implement That is extremely rational uh, and does not accentuate any cognitive biases in order to identify great opportunities. If you're doing marketing are you doing traditional marketing which is billboards where you cannot quantify the approach or are you going to do digital marketing where you're able to do things like A-B tests where you're able to determine uh, the customer acquisition costs and gradually refine the process to gr- build a great sales funnel. If you're doing business analytics, how are you looking at the inefficiencies to that business? What systems can you implement and how can you help directors of those businesses identify value within their bottom line or their margins? Okay, so it sounds like it's, it's pretty heavy in
1: terms of systems and mathematics and these, these, these very advanced
0: things, right? I, I think that overall, I mean, that is the, the history of man. And when you look at the success of Asia as a region, for example, we take a look at one of the first big revolutions, which was the agricultural revolution. So man was able to take a look at the, the geographical layout of an environment and be able to create a system, which is agriculture for himself in order to create that agricultural revolution. Secondly, we had a manufacturing revolution, which allowed individuals to scale power and strength, right? And then we also now have an information revolution, which is allowing us to scale our minds. So it's actually very natural of human beings to try to bring order into chaos. And then to try to put that into a business model, uh, which is something that we do and which is definitely being concurred by big trends such as like uh, big data analytics, such as in professional sports, uh, quantitative analytics, such as the digital marketing revolution that's happening. So all of this is coinciding and it's, it's actually confirming this philosophical approach that we have towards doing business In both Vietnam or any market that we so desire
1: so many people see Vietnam as quite chaotic in terms Mm -hmm. of industry and market and and so many things like traffic as we all agree Um, and we're gonna come back to that in a second but what journey have you taken to bring you to this point where you can apply and build these systems into any market you so desire what what did you learn what have
0: you had in terms of successes and failures that brought you to this point Okay, so in terms from a strategic standpoint, i like to reference uh, Josh Waitskin. He is a world champion uh, chess player. He was the motivation for the movie uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer. And uh, one of the interesting books that he wrote, which is called The Art of Learning, he discusses about thinking about the end game. Okay, so if you're doing business in any shape or form, what you need to envision is that exit that term sheet for example and what would the various terms within that term sheet look like you know when you're selling your equity in your business and ultimately what do you need to do to get there. So you just mentioned that Vietnam is a very chaotic environment and I know that you talk a lot about having foreigners come in to Vietnam and trying to do business and how. Basically, if they can offer that competitive advantage that it would be a very viable environment to do so So when you think about Vietnam Vietnam would fit into one of those markets where you would have a lot of millionaires Maybe potential billionaires that are would be segmented into what you would call like bad millionaires and billionaires Because most of their success is due to their different relationships uh, Due to the economic structure of Vietnam So if you're going to come in as a new player without, say, those relationships, how can you build a competitive advantage? And are you envisioning the end game? And are you able to backwardize that end game to your current starting point? And how can you build a competitive advantage that allows you to be successful in this market? And what are skill sets that you can bring into this market that other people don't offer? So what we notice in Vietnam is statistics actually only recently has actually become like a major and maybe only recently could you get your um, master's thesis on it. Very few people are prominent when it comes to statistics, which is actually surprising because it's a very common thing that you would see um, the world over. But in Vietnam, it's still relatively new. We also notice digital marketing. There is no formal education for digital marketing in Vietnam. Everything that people know here is very ad hoc. And there's an information arbitrage that exists because all the innovations in digital marketing maybe are being developed in the West in English and are only gradually trickling into Vietnam. So if you're gonna find that competitive advantage, you've gotta identify where various different weak points exist and you've got to emphasize those to build your own kind of like moat and so um, back to,
1: to your personal journey. Yeah. Um, what, so what was the journey? Where
0: did you start? What was your first job? Okay. My, my major, how about that? Because that's even more important mm-hmm. than your first job. My major was in information systems and human behavior. Okay. Uh, it's a multi multidisciplinary study, um, which works out very nice because you're able to extrapolate concepts and ideas. It, mixes some social sciences with basically uh, IT. Now, during that period of time, we had, uh, we've had we witnessed basically two financial crises, right? Basically in the 2000s and 2007. And then the, the question was like, you know, why are stocks going down? So my journey then was like, how do I understand stock market behavior with my background? So it's not gonna be from a finance perspective, it's gonna be how do you analyze stocks using a quantitative approach. How can you write a program so that you, allows you to analyze that?
1: So you approach Finance and stocks, first from the systems and behavioral side. Correct.
0: Correct. finance. Exactly. Okay. And the, the interesting thing is, part of that is you're also learning some of the social sciences. Mm-hmm. The, the thing about social sciences is that they're not very binary. There's many different schools of thoughts in terms of economics, in terms of psychology, in terms of philosophy, in terms of even business. How do you approach these things? And then since these are all arts... How do you implement a model that can allow you to be successful? And I I think that encapsulates, say, like maybe a decade journey of going. So what are the better business people doing? What are the better investors doing? What are the better economists doing? And all of those are all interconnected because ultimately an individual, or in my case, say I was doing a business that's on a very micro level. But by you playing the micro game, which is what I've been doing, say, for the last, say, decade or 15 years, then you also need to understand the macro game. And you can go forwards and backwards understanding the macro and the micro. And then when you have a good understanding of both, think about the whole chess thing, going back to Josh Waitzkin, is you start from the end, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you ensure that you understand how to go all the way back to the, uh, your first few moves on the chessboard many people will learn how to play chess from the beginning as opposed to thinking of it from the end but ultimately your result is what you're going to see at the end so what you need to do is you need to be well versed in the beginning and the end and you can start from the end to understand the beginning so basically that's part of this journey or at least the the methodical way to think about it and i think that's what i want to emphasize for the audience and i know that you're gonna this this is going to be a conversation and maybe we're talking about providing advice Mm -hmm. and what i'm doing is if you think about it some of the best advice is the you're having basically a conversation with yourself in the past right this is how i would talk to myself if it was about 15 years ago hey peter you know think about like building systems think about models and and ultimately, the audience is the benefactor of listening to something like this. Right. Sure.
1: So you talk about what, what are the better economists doing? What are the better businesses doing? What are the most successful traders doing? Right. And um, then kind of building systems from that. Correct. So do you think there's a, a confirmation bias where you don't include the failures and saying what have they not been doing? I mean, talk about Josh Waitzkin. Right. This is the end game. Right. But the, there's a good end game and there's a bad end game. Right right? So do you also look at these bad end games and kind of integrate them and what you can learn from them as well? Or do you just solely look at the good, the the successes?
0: Wait, every, a lot can be learned from the principles of game theory, right? And basically thinking about every move that you make in business, in, in life, as some kind of like tree diagram and observing the various different permutations and probabilities when you're developing that kind of strategy. So there's going to be a lot of unpredictable events that happen as you go through the course of your entrepreneurial career. It's just the kind of choices that you're going to make based on the options that you have available or maybe unavailable to you that will determine what would ultimately be success or failure. I don't think I've envisioned like to be sitting here with you today. I never plan for that but there were certain things and elements that put us here today based on many things that we've done in our past and that's why we somehow have created this serendipity absolutely okay let's talk about phoenix capital a little bit sure Uh, it was founded in
1: 2014 yeah yeah
0: it was founded in uh 2014 we we use a lot of the key core principles which i've kind of discussed about And what we wanted to do was also utilize things like the internet to compete with uh, brick and mortar institutions from the perspective of financial services. So as you know, uh, many big banks require um, large buildings to indicate that. You can always tell about a city by uh, looking at their skyline and you'll see that most skylines in most um, major cosmopolitans actually have all banking institutions. So I think that's a great indicator of where we're at in terms of society. You also need to understand that if you want to be, if the end objective is also to create a lot of value and to to obtain a lot of wealth as part of the processes, where is the money flowing? And basically, if you're not somehow in some shape or form connected uh, to financial services, which have been the ultimate benefactor of all this monetary easing post, say, 2007, 2008, then effectively maybe you're going to be a bystander of that. Uh, money is almost like a hot potato game, and the, the last guy that's going to hold up, get, get the potato, is going to be kind of like the loser it's going to be the guys that are the closest to the central banks that are going to be the benefactors of that. So if you're in financial services that inherently puts you closer to where all this quantitative easing is occurring. So the the main foundation of the business was a focus on financial services and then how to help other financial institutions and then how to help enterprises, for example, enter Vietnam successfully. Uh, as there's been very few case examples of successful foreign investment into Vietnam. Vietnam seems to be almost like a money pit as far as investment is concerned. You rarely hear about success stories. And that goes back to probably the approaches and strategies that they're implementing. And what we try to do is hopefully try to identify a successful business model that is anti-fragile to various different um, major macro or economic policies uh, from a government or a centrally planned government that sets out an economic plan every five years. Can you um, tell us exactly what you mean by anti-fragile? I mean, I, I think I know where you're going, but
1: maybe some of the listeners don't.
0: Yeah, so anti-fragility is... Um, well, the opposite of anti-fragility is fragile. And what we've seen is if you develop a business that is almost impervious to maybe external factors from affecting, say it's profitability, that would be extremely compelling. Mm -hmm. And if the business actually becomes stronger based on all this chaos, like we talked about earlier, then that is also a very compelling business. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, I would define businesses like that by identifying its overall business model and i believe that when studying an individual like warren buffett you can understand once again the macro and his investing approach and then apply it to the micro or go from the micro and then understand what creates some of the greatest companies in the world which is the macro is you can take a look at a lot of the similarities and patterns that many of the companies that buffett has invested in and if you understand what, why their business model works, then ultimately you can advise companies, you can invest in companies, and you can do very well. So my, when I refer to anti-fragility, I'm referring to the business model and how it can ensure that it will be successful. Okay. I can give some case examples. Do you have a case example from Vietnam at yes, all? Yes, yes. Okay. There are actually many case examples in Vietnam. Let's talk about uh, Prudential for a second. If you know Prudential is a multinational business, they also have a business here in Vietnam. Um, They have, I believe, an asset management entity called East Springs investment, uh, which manages probably upwards to $800 million. And what Prudential is, if you don't know, it's an insurance business. And how does the insurance business work? The insurance business works by collecting premiums. And what they do with that is basically they invest it on behalf of uh, all their clients and on behalf of the company as a a mechanism so that they can generate capital gains while some clients will actually have an actual emergency and actually need to utilize their insurance. So the whole model, the whole business model of insurance business is that they collect in, in layman's terms is they collect a whole bunch of money, they're able to invest it. Very few people actually need insurance services. And the way that they mathematically calculate it with their models is that they're able to determine um, a certain ratio, for example, that they can accept to lose. And they know that a majority of that will be net profit for them. In finance terms, we call that a float. So basically a business that is able to collect money upfront and be able to invest it in advance. So insurance is one example in um, gyms, for example, if you notice, they'll take maybe like a 18 month or like 12 month uh, membership from you. So they've just collected your money all up front, right? And there's no working capital concerns that they're going to have because now they have all your money that you've moved <laughs> down pay. It, Considering it's almost New Year's, it's going to be interesting because many people are <laughs> going to have New Year's resolutions. So this is probably the peak time for gyms. So you're going to probably sign up for one year. They'll give you a great discount, but maybe several months from now, you're not even going to be using their gym services. Right. So what are they going to do with all that extra money? Well, maybe they can expand their businesses or they can return some of that to their investors. So there are certain businesses that have that inherent advantage and it strictly is dependent on the business model. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Um, so um,
0: other than Prudential, is there a
1: non-insurance example? Like something like gyms? obviously right. like the pay upfront, so that's just on float, float is that the, the sole contributor to this anti-fragility that you're talking about? Or is there
0: another example
1: that, that focuses on another part of that? Yeah.
0: So basically, um, in internationally and in Vietnam as well, is that say, for example, in the mining industry, there are, say the owner of the land, which in many cases, the government here sometimes, or some state owned enterprise is entitled to any a form of royalty for basically anything that is extracted. And the royalty is a great business because mining is a very capital intensive business. You're gonna need the machines, you gotta get all the licenses, you gotta take the risk of extraction, you gotta determine the feasibility of the project. So someone needs to front all that capital. But imagine if you were the benefactor of that through some kind of royalty. Or let's take something that many people could do, which is some kind of like licensing fee, for example. Say you have like a franchise or you're the owner of the franchise or you own the master franchise and you're able to uh, sublease your franchise so that someone else can use it, maybe in Hanoi, for example. And you don't have to do any of the operating expenses for that, but you're collecting a royalty based on their revenue. I believe in the very building that we're sitting here, there could be some kind of royalty that could work out maybe with mcdonald's that's here so mcdonald's might take out a much cheaper lease uh but as a byproduct the owner of this building might get some kind of royalty for that so this business these business models irrespective of the changes in the macro economic environment will still be impervious to that and it's a very simple thing but it's often not discussed about when you're discussing about such a tough frontier market like Vietnam. Okay.
1: So about Phoenix Capital, what, yeah. uh, what is your most popular, most commonly uh, used product that you provide to people?
0: The two most used products right now is our marketing services and our financial advisory services. Can you define each one of those a little bit more specifically? Sure, sure. So going back to the financial advisory is that, as I indicated, this conversation that we're having, believe it or not, there's gonna be many people that wanna set up businesses, start businesses, uh, figure out how to make them successful. Many of them are gonna think, let's let's take a bigger one, an SME and above, like let's take a foreign listed company. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna mess around by thinking, look, we can just do this willy-nilly without planning and if they're willing to have the right advisors to structure some of this stuff for them, then they're gonna be inherently at a much more advantageous position. Think about the content that we're talking about here and even apply that to a startup, for example. So if I was to create a brand new company, I think I could construct it in a manner that would allow it to be quote unquote anti-fragile. And many people here or in Southeast Asia might not see the value of that initially. But if you are a listed company or a small to medium enterprise, you probably would have the resources to say, hey, let's take a listen to what these Phoenix guys have to say. Um, They've obviously been here for a long time. They've created successful businesses. They've advised much bigger companies, even uh, multinational institutions. Perhaps we can benefit from something like that. And that's what this market needs. It needs people that were not necessarily what I would call rent seekers, that have the ability to truly help people in Vietnam. And the ancillary benefit of that is that if you can create successful investment in Vietnam, is then you'll have a much stronger economy in Vietnam. And everyone wants that. But the truth is, when you're in a market like we're at, and it's the year 2016, where basically the whole world is at all-time highs in terms of stock market performance which is a barometer of maybe how how well the economy is doing to some extent and then when you have debt at basically a hundred and fifty trillion dollars right so there's just excess money and then if you look at the derivatives market which is probably trillions and trillions of dollars Mm -hmm. there's a lot of money floating around Why is not a lot of that coming to Vietnam? Why is our GDP only $120 billion? Why has it not been a benefactor of attracting capital? Perhaps because people aren't seeing the investment returns. Perhaps there's not enough organizations that are generally creating value for their clients as a financial advisor. And that's what we do in terms of our financial advisory business. Now, in terms of our digital marketing business is that there are many marketing agencies here in Vietnam, and I talk, discussed about with you earlier, is that very few are well-versed in terms of doing digital marketing because there's not education for that industry. But what's also interesting is that there are certain industries that could really use more sales or more capital or outside capital or investment. Let's take a look at the biggest industry in Vietnam, which is a real estate industry. Now imagine if I was a company like Novaland which probably is on the verge of IPOing listing on the stock market has a lot of projects aggressively building trying to look for more tenants more people to take out leases and basically they fully exhausted their offline approach So we as an organization help companies like even Novaland to generate a successful digital campaign to basically bring online clients for an offline transaction because to purchase a house or a condo, it's going to be more than $300. And if you're spending more than $300 in Vietnam, you're going to need both an online component that creates a successful sales funnel to an offline component as well. So there's many industries that marketing guys, which are probably more artistic than anything else, are going to find very dry, And they're not going to focus on them, such as financial services, real estate, insurance, all of these industries, pharmaceuticals, for example. But what is not understood is that these are probably some of the major pillars of the economy here. And if you can specialize in that, then you will have an inherent advantage. You must understand that for pharmaceutical companies, almost 50% of their costs can go into marketing. But how are you gonna write the copy in both English and Vietnamese that is gonna be compelling? And that is the connection to the financial services aspect because we as an internet business, have done successful copy in finance and now we're able to apply that for our clients in terms of marketing as well okay so a a few sentences ago you said
1: something about uh if you're spending more than 300 yeah you need to have per person right you need to have an offline component right can you dig into that a little bit what does that mean in real terms for
0: vietnam Uh, yeah sure so everyone talks about the the wonders of e-commerce in vietnam and It's fantastic double digit growth rates. The reality is that, uh, for most companies that are selling products of value over $300, the consumer still needs to touch and feel the product. And that doesn't necessarily mean from a home delivery standpoint, it means that I need to go to the store. I need to basically see you unbox basically in an unboxing video with the warranty attached onto the product for me to feel comfortable in making the purchase. So what's interesting is when I take a look at the financials of retailers, for example, say you're an electronic retailer, how you are classifying what's considered e-commerce and what you are classifying as basically brick and mortar sale. Mm -hmm. And they kind of go coincide with each other and different organizations will classify the source or the point of the sale Differently, So it's actually quite ambiguous. But if you understand that that is the nature of the consumer here in Vietnam, then what you're going to do is see how you can create some interesting funnels that can bring you both uh, online and then offline conversion. Mm-hmm. And then you have to think about it. The, the, the more pricier the product, potentially the more lucrative the, the project that you're doing is, uh, and some of the interesting spaces are like in uh, financial services. Okay.
1: Can you give us a, a specific example of a, a funnel that uh, has done exactly what you just described?
0: Okay. So in Vietnam, one of the bigger industries is uh, a sector called uh, consumer finance. Consumer finance is all the rage. Effectively what it is, is basically I could go to a store and say I don't have enough money as long as I have proof of employment. I can go to one of these quote unquote consumer finance companies and basically take out a high interest loan in order to purchase my product. Typically we're looking at maybe 30, 35% interest and there are consumers that are happy to buy that because they consider the the value of the phone, for example, could be worth it and it could give them the social status that they need. So they'll buy the iPhone, pay 35% per annum uh, interest rate for that. And some company, which has a special license, uh, can provide them that loan. Now, it's a $15 billion industry, and it's a rapidly growing industry in Vietnam. Vietnam. 15 billion. Correct. And it is continuing to grow, um, and it's having a larger presence in all the major retailers here in Vietnam. So if you wanted to exploit uh, the quote-unquote consumer demographic, which everyone talks about notoriously, there are maybe ancillary ways to benefit from that, such as in financial services, such as in consumer finance. Now, there's very few companies that actually can obtain the license. You obviously have to have the relationships to do so. Mm-hmm. But what companies are successfully building the channel, the, the funnel, and who truly understands the copy the the whole approach to bringing a client online all the way to the point where they're walking in to your location and saying, hey, I wanna open an account with you guys. And if you can master some of these niches, it can be extremely interesting. And those are some of the spaces that we're focused on. And maybe for any of the guys that are doing marketing that are listening to this, they're probably just like, I don't really know what this is, it makes no sense to me, I'd rather just sell uh, Coca-Cola. But good luck, because Um, companies like multinationals have only a select amount of agencies that they're gonna go with and you're gonna have to bid for those projects but those are probably the ones that are very competitive Mm -hmm. and this is the blue oceans that I'm talking about as opposed to these red bloody waters right so this this consumer
1: finance example Mm -hmm. uh, would you be working with the consumer finance companies or with the
0: retailers once again, oh. it offers many different permutations, uh-huh. right? You can um, provide value to many different perspectives. It's how you want to look at it and typically what kind of insight that you can provide. In fact, many of them are going to say, hey, we know some of this stuff that you're already talking about, but it's it, it's a matter of several things, the relationship, the the quality of the pitch, and maybe the KPIs that you can deliver as well.
1: Okay. all right, Let's uh, shift gears a little bit sure. here. Let's talk about some of the challenges
0: you've had. Okay. Um, What's been your most expensive mistake? Wow, this is an interesting question. So is the mistake spending all of this time building a fantastic economic moat in a country with a population of 90 million people or 93 million people with a GDP of basically $126 um, and maybe a salary rate of uh, $2,000 per capita, is that the most expensive mistake? Because you can, in theory, apply many of the things that we discussed about in much more developed markets and maybe be capturing a much larger sum of overall revenues. So the expensive mistake is perhaps the opportunity costs. And then it's a question about time and what you're doing with your time. And are you able to find some compelling distinct advantages? So Vietnam offers some advantages and people talk talk about them, but the question is, are they appropriately utilizing them? So here's an example. With Phoenix Capital, we have a bunch of financial experts. Uh, Some of them are foreign educated, but they've never had the opportunity to fully utilize their education about financial services or financial analysis because the market here is way too early stage for you to be talking about very complex aspects. And what happens for individuals that go to school internationally or domestically and they go through their university learning about all these different advanced financial products is that once they go into the job force, If they're not being able to practice and exercise their knowledge, then maybe they become a little bit more stale. So what we offer at this organization is that because we have a multinational client base, we're able to test the limits of your education and your background. And very few organizations can offer that. And if you're able to test someone's background and you're probably one of the only shops in house here in Vietnam that are doing something like this, then perhaps the opportunity is working internationally and being um, equally as viable as like a big four entity around the region. Mm -hmm. And that's the arbitrage. But how can you continue to develop and build that business? So we're at an interesting nexus right now where we have, all this amazing infrastructure here in Vietnam. And some of the clients that we love to deal with are international clients because our work is internationally comparable and as you know, it's probably very hard to maintain quality here that would not be distinguishable uh, amongst um, you know, stuff that you would see in the West. But what we're doing now is just outreaching towards maybe foreign direct investors. Uh, you know, uh, investors that are interested in investing throughout the region uh, that are looking for advisors, thinking about how they're going to grow their business, make it into a multinational business. And those are the things that we're able to do out of Vietnam, which is an interesting journey. And then sometimes you have to assess once again, the opportunity costs that you Uh took by spending time here. Uh But I think I compensate for that by still trying to contribute things internationally as you know we have this podcast the big trade series we talk to nobel prize winners we talk to uh aspiring uh you know investors and world-renowned investors and you know presidential candidates like ron paul so it's it's an interesting journey but you have to find your niche okay well there's two things i want to talk about here and they're both equally Mm. as interesting to me Mm. first of all
1: you, you just talked about the opportunity cost of being in Vietnam directly after saying niching down into specific parts for your services right. is how you have an advantage. Right. Perhaps niching into Vietnam is one of those advantages. I guess the other question then is when, right? Because you said the opportunity cost is how much time you spend here in order to realize that opportunity. Right. Right. Um, the second thing about the podcast, since you brought it up, uh, where did the podcast come from? Because it's called the, the big trade, right? right? Uh, which is also
0: the title of a book you wrote. Correct. So tell us about that. Okay, so going back to your first question is the when, right? And I think in order to manage my sanity, is that's why we had to find like the niches, ASAP, mm-hmm. and try to implement them. Some of it may be a little early as far as market development is concerned. Some of it's just the perfect time right now. But as I said, when you're trying to build an anti-fragile business, you cannot, in this country especially, use the word when. You cannot be dependent on certain catalysts to happen because that could take forever. So you've got to make sure whatever it is that you're applying ha- is applicable now. Because at the end of the day, you have to put food on the table. You have to generate revenue. I look at my PL, say, for example, on a monthly basis. So we've got to make sure that these ideas, which might sound conceptual right now or might sound theoretical, have that applicable um, application from a commercial respect. And that's what we've been doing. As far as the content is concerned, we believe that's also a major competitive advantage. Because how many people, as you mentioned, are doing podcasts? How many people are doing books? How many people are even thought leaders out of Vietnam from an international perspective? So what we offer to clients is, once again, something that is internationally comparable from a thought leaders, from a think tank, basically, that's doing some interesting R&D, relatively innovative but also pragmatic to the current conditions of the market um that's a very rare composition and not only are we just doing this for the sake of doing it because anyone can self-publish a book as you know many people can do a podcast but we try or at least we strive to make sure that it's internationally comparable so this book that's published by wiley was published internationally then it got published in Vietnam. It sold about 5,000 copies internationally, translated by the University of Shanghai Finance and Economics. It was like a top seller on Amazon. It covers the quantitative approaches to, to building models. And the podcast has, like I mentioned, reputable people such as Nobel Prize winners, renowned investors like Jim Rogers, Doug Casey, uh, renowned newsletter writers like Porter Stansberry, Ron Paul, a libertarian thought leader um, on on the podcast as well. And then sometimes really quirky guys that have really interesting insight. Mm -hmm. That is probably another way to keep sanity, but also to make sure that we are contributing and you don't just get stuck in the nexus of Vietnam.
1: Right. Okay. I mean, we could talk about these things, I think, all day long. Yeah. Um, These are topics that are really interesting to me. Right. Um, Especially since the the quantitative angle that you take on services here in Vietnam is is really, really unique, I believe, and worth exploring. Um, But the podcast is a limited time, so we're going to round out this episode by focusing more in on you uh, personally. Right. Okay. So... um, what inspires you? Because you do a lot of things. Right. Um, when you talk about your your models, that you, you come alive and, and talk about this and that and the other yeah, things. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of things that come together. Right. But what inspires you to take this difficult journey of being here in Vietnam, doing something unique?
0: I think that it is taking. I have a wild imagination, and it is one of man's great successes to take your thoughts and ideas and transform the world around you and then have the world around you transform you through some fantastic feedback loop. Uh, A strategist named John Boyd, he has a strategy, military strategy called OODA loop, which is observe and orient and ultimately then decide and take action. And what I've seen in Vietnam was when I came here, I just worked at banking institutions and I've managed to transform myself and transform my own environment, my whole world, through these ideas and hard work. And what allows you to do that is to basically try to tap into your maximum potential. Stephen Cutler wrote a book called The Rise of Superman. And the idea of that book is to tap into this state of flow. And if you can get into a state of flow, which is like as athletes will call it in being in the zone. If you can get in the zone and be there for as long as time as possible, you will achieve incredible things and then when you have a team of people that understand that vision, you can add scale to that and that is probably one of the things that inspires me which is to become basically the best version of myself as possible and there's no limit to that and every day that you practice your craft and hone into that, you're just becoming better and more better than the competition. And that proves itself, obviously, through the growth and the success of your business. Because that's another feedback loop that you're getting too. So I could be a complete heretic saying all this stuff, but I know that we have clients. Our clients are satisfied. We're making revenue from this. We're a profitable business. Mm-hmm. So that's some feedback loop. But you constantly have to improve. And, and that's that's what inspires me to be the best person that I possibly can be. And what was interesting was when I was in Canada, you're a minority. So I'm Canadian-Vietnamese, basically, right? Mm-hmm. And people, uh, the financial industry there is very Anglo-Saxon-based as well. So most of the the people in top of this uh, the industry are like that. And there's basically... Uh, glass ceilings. But, you know, spending all this time and focus on being the best version of yourself, you've effectively broken glass ceilings. And what's interesting is that because you you become a better person, even the perception that other people have of you is completely different. So if you were talking to me maybe 15 years ago, you're like, who is this guy? Right? And I think that's that's the message. But for some reason, not a lot of people have that goal. And not a lot of people are on that path for whatever reason. And it affects their whole life. Because let's say I'm only interested in finding the lover, for example. And if I don't, if I haven't self-actualized, then the my relationship with other people is going to be very different. So when you watch movies like James Bond and Mission Impossible, and you see these guys that are basically like alpha males, that completely dominate um, the moment, um, and people are attracted to them and magnetized to them. So th- there's something quite interesting to say. Hey, what if we could try to be the best person that we can be? What? How would the world treat us? And I've seen that feedback loop, and it's it's fantastic. And if other people were on that path, we could create some really amazing things.
1: Okay. Wow. That that's a lot of inspiration. And uh, I think you skipped right into my my question about advice. Okay. I think that's all wrapped up into that answer right there. I think that's really great. Um, I feel a, a lot of similar things about being the best version of myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're in we're in line there. So instead of asking about more advice, yeah. I'm going to ask you to give our audience three action points for business in Vietnam in 2017. Okay,
0: that's interesting. Just three points. Okay. Read the Four Hour Workweek. Read the Forty Eight Laws of Power, and read Smart Cuts. Smart cuts. Yeah. Okay. You want know so, to you know what that one is about? I actually, I don't know
1: smart cuts, but um, so your your action points for better business is to read. Read a heck of a lot. Read a heck of a lot. Yeah. I can't argue with that advice. Uh, that that those are good action points for everyone. I'm gonna put all three of those into the the show notes for right. sure. Um, can you share with the audience where we can get in touch with you? Yeah,
0: you can reach us at info at phx-cap.com. Okay. That's the Phoenix Capital site. Okay, uh, any social media? Uh, LinkedIn, you can probably find me there, but you're probably better off like hearing from me first before you even want to talk to me at the podcast, which is the Big Trade series, or you could read my book, which is The Big Trade, Simple Strategies for Maximum Market Returns. Okay, that's, that's uh, action point number four. <laughs> Perhaps, without being self-promotional. But at least you get a you get a sense. And and I think there's there's some philosophical approaches. People just think it's oh it's stock market stuff, but no, there's more to that. There's a story behind it. And and once again, if you think about the end and you think about the beginning and how you get there, it can be quite interesting. But smart cuts is definitely one. Just a quick note on that one. It's about rising up and finding not a shortcut, because a shortcut means you could be cheating, right? Yeah smart cut is basically finding a way how to get to your destination um, the most effective way possible. And a great example of this is the president role, right? If you notice, most presidents are actually presidents at a relatively young age. That's one criteria. Or they have very little political experience. And somehow they become the most powerful man in the whole world. That is definitely worth thinking about because it indicates that you can get from point A to point B, not necessarily going the conventional route, right. and how you can find a value creation route that allows you to rise to where you need to be.
1: That's a great point on ending it, speaking yeah. of end games. Uh, thank you, Peter, for sharing your vision, your inspiration about Phoenix Capital and everything right. else. Thank you very much, Brian.
0: We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.